Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Hard podcast. Early on in my leadership career, I was a regional manager at a large bank. At the time, I had responsibility for overseeing about 30 retail banking branch offices. And while I was in the role, my team ranked number one out of 85 nationwide regions for three consecutive years. And over the same period, I built a reputation for developing people. I grew to be seen as a highly talented and inspiring leader who knew how to drive performance in a sustainable way, and I had high hopes of being promoted into a senior leadership role. One day, my boss called to tell me that he'd just been promoted, and I took a deep breath in anticipation that he was about to tell me that he had chosen me to succeed him. Instead, he announced that he'd elevated one of my peers to the role. I won't lie, I was shocked and dismayed but mostly I was just completely confused. I mean, my peers team had been nowhere near as successful as mine had been in innumerable areas. And I simply didn't understand why I'd been passed over. So the next morning, I decided to call my boss and ask him to explain why I wasn't chosen. And without hesitation, he told me that I was the most deserving person by far and that I was greatly admired within the organization. Without a second separating those kind words, however, he told me that many of my peers were interested in learning more from me, but I was seen as someone who didn't share. As I assessed myself in that moment, I knew I wasn't someone who was uncooperative or unwilling to give information to others to help them succeed. That wasn't me. But until that very moment, I simply thought my job was to focus on making my own team succeed. And his point was that I could have and should have offered to help other regional managers advance their skills at the same time. And he wanted me to prove that I could do this before he'd consider me for a promotion. So the good news is that I quickly demonstrated to my boss that I could happily and effectively mentor and share information with my peers. And he soon found an even more challenging role for me further up the ladder. But I share the story because this was a really painful career setback but it taught me an invaluable lesson that we're going to focus on in this podcast. And it's the idea that by helping other people achieve their goals, by focusing on what we can do for others, that we elevate our standing and make ourselves indispensable. So my guest today is Bruce Tolkien. As you're about to hear, he's an especially smart observer of generational trends as they impact leadership. And he's written over 20 books, including Not Everyone Gets a Trophy, and his new bestseller, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work. Regardless of what position or role someone holds in an organization, this is a book that shows how indispensable go-to people think and behave, and how they build up their influence with others by doing the right things at the right times for the right reasons. And it's invaluable information at a time when work now requires so much collaboration across divisions, upwards, downwards, and sideways. So for the next hour, we're going to discuss ways for you to make yourself indispensable while helping the people you lead become indispensable too. And as quick background, Bruce Tolgan is a graduate of Amherst College and New York University School of Law. He's joining us from the beautiful state of Connecticut. Welcome to the podcast, Bruce. Thank you so much for including me. Well, I'm happy to have you here and uh, congratulations on how many books have you written so far, by the way? You know, it depends on what you count, but if you count them all, there's 21. That's incredible. That's really prolific. So congratulations and congratulations on this one. 
And as I was reading it, much of it is focused on helping individual employees become indispensable at work. I mean, that's irrefutable. But what I'd like to do, if you're up for it, is to specifically frame our discussion around how leaders can achieve this. Because I was thinking about my own career as I was reading your book and thinking about how did I make myself indispensable and what mistakes did I make in the process and what did I ultimately learn was invaluable. And I think a lot of the things in your book were really confirming. So start us off by describing the characteristics of a go-to leader. Well, leadership, in my view, is a profound responsibility. If you are in charge of someone else and have power in relation to their career and livelihood, their ability to contribute to the mission of an organization, their ability to feed their family. You have a tremendous amount of power. And so I think first and foremost, a go-to person when it comes to leadership is somebody who recognizes that responsibility, owns that responsibility, and takes a service mindset to providing guidance, direction, support, and coaching for the people who report to you. Okay, so how did you learn that in the process of writing 21 books? So this idea that leadership is the sacred responsibility is really sort of how I'm concluding what you just said. How did you discover this and why do you believe it so strongly? Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, you could say, does it come from my own work experience? And the answer is, I've never really had much of a job, uh, <laughs> so it ain't that. <laughs> I was a lawyer for 428 days back in the early 90s, but that's about as close as I've ever had to a real job. But what we've been doing for 27 years is interviewing people on the front lines of the workplace. So all of our work is based on what is now 27 years of research. We do in-depth interviews. We ask people who are not managers, we ask them, how are you being managed? How does that affect your ability to perform? How do you want to be managed? We ask managers, hey, what's hard for you about being a leader, manager, supervisor? What gets in your way? We ask people, why do you go work someplace? Why do you leave? What helps you get more done? What gets in your way? And we've interviewed more than a half a million people from more than 400 organizations over the last 27 years. All of our work is based on this ongoing in-depth interview research. And our interviews are a little bit different from most because we ask open-ended questions. Of course, we do ask some multiple choice questions and gather statistical quantitative data, but mostly we ask open-ended questions and gather qualitative data. And the other thing that's different about our interviews is we keep talking with people as long as they're willing to keep talking to us. So they're longitudinal interviews. So many of our interviews go back to 1993 and tens of thousands of our interviews have gone on for more than 10 years. So this longitudinal research is the basis of all of our work. By the way, that's why I'm able to write so many books, because every so often, you know, I gather up a bunch of interviews and press print, and then I got a book. Oh, so is that you kind of jumped my question here, which is, is that the motivation? So you're just tapping these discussions and that's leading you into writing your next book? Or like, what was the motivation originally 27 years ago to start having these conversations? Yeah, so 27 years ago, I was a 20-something. I was a young, relatively unhappy lawyer at number two Wall Street doing corporate transactions 
And it was in the early 90s, and I had some conversations with some older, more experienced lawyers, and you know, there was this friction between the younger, less experienced lawyers and the older, more experienced lawyers. And one of the older partners said to me one time, you know, you and all your, all the young lawyers are a bunch of slackers. And I said, you know, <laughs> are you sure slacker is the word you're looking for? I mean, Kim went to Georgetown. I went to NYU. Bob went to Harvard. You know, <laughs> Ray went to Columbia. Is that what you mean, slackers? You know, but I said to him, you know, if only you knew what the young lawyers were whispering about over lunch. And then he got very curious. And anyway, this led me to write what I thought would originally be an article. I was going to write an article called What Your Young Employees Are Whispering About Over Lunch. And I had this idea that I could do that in one of the feature publications in New York. It seemed like a very early 90s New York young upstart thing to do. Anyway, that turned into my first book, Managing Generation X. That book hit a nerve. It was the right thing at the right time. And ever since then, I've been interviewing people and every so often an issue bubbles up to the top and then it turns into a book. But over the years, what my firm has turned into an organizational consulting firm and what we do is we go into organizations and do in-depth talent assessments and organizational culture assessments. So we're always gathering data. And when an issue bubbles to the top, then what I like to look for are issues that are bothering people. And then I dig into the research and try to find solutions. If I can find a good problem and a good solution, then I know I've got a book. So just to pin this thing down here, this older, I'm guessing this guy was probably in his 40s, right? So he's not even an old guy. But, you know, this is somebody in a different generation looking at the new generation of highly educated from prestigious schools and nevertheless says, you know, all you guys are a bunch of slackers. So was he just threatened by the ascendancy of the next generation of attorneys? Or was there something else going on there? Well, you know, every new generation comes along and irritates the older, more experienced people. There's Mm -hmm. a long range term of art we use to describe this phenomenon. We call it kids today. (laughs) And, you know, there's something timeless about generational difference, but it's not just about the older people being irritated by younger people. You know, each generation is an accident of its own history. And so in the 90s, Gen Xers were the young upstarts, but there was this myth. Remember, the Generation X, the slacker generation, we were supposed to be disloyal. We had short attention spans. We didn't want to work as hard. We demanded immediate gratification. We wanted everything our own way, and we wanted it right now. And then there was the first dot-com boom. So the baby boomers and the pre-boomers were looking at Gen Xers with fear in their eyes and saying, oh my gosh, they've invented magical business models. They can make money without services and products. So when managing... Generation X came out, the companies that called me were like GE, Anheuser-Busch, very old-fashioned organizations, the YMCA, the United States Army, and they were concerned because there was this new emerging generation that seemed to threaten a lot of the norms and values and presumptions and expectations about the career path and career model that was still dominant in that time. It was really the post-war job security myth 
was still alive and well, you know, into the late 80s and early 90s. And it started to be really challenged and compromised. So I think as most generational conflicts are, it was an accident of history. Well, I don't want to get too far off topic here because I want to talk about your new book, but I want to probe this just a little bit further because now the millennial generation is actually getting a little bit long in the tooth, and now we have Gen Z. So I'm interested in your point of view as to whether or not generation to generation we are adaptable. So in other words, once we get the research, let's just say they read your book on Gen X, did you see organizations shift in a way that was oriented towards accommodating or at least meeting that new generation in the middle? Or did we continue to have generations fighting with each other? And will that continue now that you know we've got at least four, maybe five different generations working in the workplace today? Yeah, I mean, you could argue there are six generations right now, depending on your generational model. And for those who follow our research, we've been tracking generational change in the workplace now for 27 years. Every January, we do a white paper called The Great Generational Shift. And this year, it's The Great Generational Shift 2020. Little did we know that the whole world was going to be turned upside down and inside out. But, you know, the pandemic is a great example of an accident of history that shapes generational norms. The young people who are in school right now, this accident of history is going to transform their norms and values in their future. You know, to your point, the millennials, now the oldest millennials, depending on which generational definition you use, are 42 based on our model. And, you know, I wrote a book about the millennials called Not Everyone Gets a Trophy. Well, you know, now the oldest of them are 42. I know. It seems irrelevant. It's incredible. But yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, we've been tracking Generation Z, the post-millennials, those born 1997 and later, and they're already 24. Imagine starting out your career right now when the workplace is not a place or finishing your college or university or high school education or graduate school education when... All of a sudden, school has disappeared and you're online. So our research shows that um, there are huge macro forces, globalization, technology, institutions in a state of constant flux, individuals feeling like they have to depend on themselves and can't rely on institutions, the information tidal wave, the pace of change, immediacy, all of these macro forces have been moving roughly in the same direction, but there's a lot of micro shifts. So if you look at the Gen Zers, they're growing up in a time of crisis, environmental crisis, public health crisis, economic crisis. I mean, they're like children of the 1930s. If children of the 1930s had learned how to think, learn, and communicate while attached to a handheld supercomputer, and if they had been raised by helicopter parents on steroids, right? So, you know, where is Generation Z going to go? We don't know. But this is a perennial issue for leaders, managers, and supervisors. You know, what do you change and what should stay the same? One of the things I say to our clients, business leaders all the time, is how much should you adapt to young people? The answer is exactly as much as you need to to attract the best ones, to get the best work out of them, and to keep the best ones longer. But they're joining you. You're not joining them. So you've got to know what is core to your business and to your business process, and you don't change that stuff. 
it's okay. You're the one paying them. They're not paying you. I'm glad we dug into this a little bit and way off where I'd like to go in talking about your book. But it, this is really interesting because I think our instinct is as human beings is like, hey, I'm the boss, so you adapt to me. And it seems that within the guidelines you just described that the wiser leaders and wiser organizations are saying, if we want to attract them, if we want to retain them and inspire them to do great work, we're going to have to meet them more than in the middle. We're going to have to make accommodations in how we lead and how we manage and the way we create their workplace, irrespective of COVID, right? Yeah, I mean, look, the reality is that younger, less experienced people, the reason we've kept our finger on the pulse of the new young workforce for 27 years is they're like canaries in the coal mine. Mm -hmm. You know, if you keep yeah. your finger on the pulse of young people, they're shaped by the same forces shaping the changing environment. And so that doesn't mean everyone gets a trophy. It doesn't mean come to work whenever you feel like it and bring your dog. It doesn't mean we're gonna turn work into a playground. It doesn't mean we're gonna turn training into a video game. It doesn't mean we're gonna do everything your way. Here are the keys, kid, run the place. No. But it does mean that we've got to pay attention to the data coming from the emerging workforce and employers absolutely must pay attention to what they need to do to attract and uh, motivate and retain the best young talent. So let's transition now and talk about the research that led you into writing this new book. I really want to know what a go-to leader looks like and why a leader would even want to be that kind of a person, because in some respects, it seems like an energetic drain to be, you know, the go-to for anybody. So why don't you define what you mean by a go-to leader or even a go-to employee, if that's more comfortable, and then tell us really what are the characteristics of being this person and why this is in every leader's best interest. Yeah, I mean, look, right now, everybody wants to be that indispensable go-to person because people are genuinely concerned about their job security, their livelihoods, their careers, their position. What's going to change? Am I still going to be able to make a living? So more than ever now, everybody wants to be that indispensable go-to person. The problem is, as you suggest, that trying to be that indispensable go-to person at any level it makes you highly susceptible to overcommitment syndrome. Because what is the go-to person? The go-to person is the one whom others rely on, whom others rely on to get their needs met. Who do I go to? The person that I have trust and confidence, this person can help me get my needs met very well, very fast, on time, on specification, with as little trouble and as little damage to the relationship as possible. Right? That's who I want to go to. And if you're trying to be that go-to person at any level, as a leader, manager, supervisor, as a um, individual contributor, you have to decide, are you going to play the short game or the long game? Meaning? Well, if you play the short game, you want to say yes, yes, yes to everyone and everything, right? If you want to feel like, oh, I want to be a good team player. I want people to count on me. I want people to rely on me. Then somebody comes to me. I'm afraid to say no. I feel like I have to say yes. The problem is you can't say yes to everyone and everything. And if you're not careful, 
about when to say no and how to say yes. If you're not careful about how you allocate your time and energy, very quickly you make yourself susceptible to overcommitment syndrome. If you become overcommitted, you have too much to do and not enough time, pretty soon you're in danger of disappointing somebody, you're juggling, you're gonna drop a ball, you're gonna have delays, you're gonna have mistakes, and you're gonna do damage to relationships. So this is why I set out to solve the puzzle. See, I'm not interested in solving easy problems. Those don't require a book. It was precisely this puzzle that made me curious enough to investigate that these people who want to be the indispensable go-to person, that's why there's a lot of wannabes, why there's a lot of uh, sometimes go-to people, why there's a lot of imposters, why there's a lot of former go-to people. Because, you know, people, they have a great attitude, they're good at their job, they work hard, and they want to show up and be a good team player, but pretty soon they get themselves overcommitted, and they realize either they get burned out and leave, Mm -hmm. or they get burned out and stay, or they get burned out and hide for a while, and then come back and try again. So it's not as simple as it sounds. And what I wanted to figure out was, what is it that these people who stand the test of time, who are these sort of indispensable go-to people who stand the test of time, what is it that they have in common? And what I found was that they play the long game, that they're much more interested in doing the right thing than in pleasing people in the moment. They're more interested in doing the right thing for the business for the right reasons than in winning popularity contests. They're willing to prove themselves through results and outcomes rather than through avoiding difficult interactions in the moment. And as a result of that, um, they conduct themselves in a very uh, methodical, professional, systematic way that's all about making the right decisions for the long game. But there's also an element of interpersonal skills that makes somebody a go-to person, right? You can have somebody who's really competent, who gets good work done, but who's just a pain in the ass to work with, and that would nullify their ability to be a go-to person. So there's sort of this emotional intelligence that's on top of the sheer competency, and then the willingness to be helpful to other people. Am I right? Yeah, that's exactly right. But it's beyond attitude and emotional intelligence because you got to be good at your job, right? But we all know technical experts who nobody wants to work with, Mm -hmm. right? Um, You know, you got to be a hard worker, but we all know about that workhorse who nobody wants to deal with that person, right? And we all know people who have a great attitude who then as a result of that overpromise, And overpromising is no way to be a go-to person who stands the test of time. So yes, you've got to have a great attitude. You've got to have a way with people. But this is another kind of interesting red herring that I chased down was a lot of people were saying, yeah, yeah, you're onto something here. People have to learn how to say no. Don't people do that naturally, though? Isn't there sort of like, oh, man, did I get buried in quicksand by saying yes to this? And then you lean in the other direction and you say no to everything. And then your boss comes and says, hey, man, you're like, you're not contributing. You're you're just focusing on yourself. That's not going to work. And then you sort of 
over time, find the equivalent of a balance that's workable where everybody's happy? Well, you're exactly right that if you're all attitude and all about pleasing people, you say yes, 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 until what? Until you get overwhelmed. Then you say no, no, no. Why? Because of your workload and your siege mentality, (laughs) not because of the quality of the opportunity, the quality of the request, the quality of the person who's asking, or the business value. So you You're right that what ends up happening is people toggle between yes, 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 and no, 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 where people set themselves apart as go-to people who stand the test of time is the ones who learn when to say no and how to say yes based on the business need, the quality of the opportunity, and the quality of the working relationship, and your fit with the business need, the business relationship, and the opportunity. All right, so let me stop and define this work world that we're living in right now. And and this, this exists in a COVID world too, but you've defined it really well, which is to say, and I know that this is absolutely true now, that we're, we're working across organizational silos and we're collaborating with people who are in every dimension. They're up from us, down from us, sideways to us, diagonal to us. The classic word of divisions within organization makes no sense any longer. But this is important because what you're describing is what you've called a collaboration revolution. And if we're in this collaboration revolution, then it becomes this challenging thing, which is like, that guy's diagonal to me. What difference does it make if I support him or her? Or that guy's below me. And so I need to just support my boss and people who are above my boss. So we become very calculated. And, you know, we're thinking we're only going to support the people that butter our bread, if you will. And that's a colossal mistake if you want to be a go-to person. So in the context of that, Now define how the wisest go-to people have figured out how to maneuver through the yeses and the no decisions. Yeah, you're exactly right, because that's how you easily say, you're not my boss, that's not my job. But no, the ethos of today is everybody's your customer. You might be getting requests from people across the organization. You don't even know who they are. But likewise, you may have to rely on people across the organization, even if they don't know who you are. And this is true for leaders and managers throughout the chain of command, as well as individual contributors. I mean, look, one of the things that leaders almost always have in common is, you know, I always ask managers, no matter where they are in the chain of command, hey, do you have a boss? Almost always they're like, yep, I got a boss too. And even if you talk to the CEO, yep, I answer to the board. So everybody answers to somebody, but it's very easy in this environment to say, all right, you know, you're not my boss. That's not my job. I've already got too much to do and not enough time. So I'm just going to try to please my boss. But that is no way to be a go-to person. It's no way to meet your obligations to cross-functional partners Look, collaborating and serving your internal customers is your job. Everybody now is in shared services. No matter what you do, no matter where you work, you're in shared services. So look, you do need to worry about your boss. So what our advice is, you've always got to go vertical before you go sideways. So wherever you are in the chain of command, you've got to align with your boss. And then as a leader, you've got to make sure your direct reports are aligned with you. 
the vertical anchor, no matter how much we eliminate layers of management, no matter how much we tell people work things out at your own level, no matter how much we tell people mm-hmm. uh, go out and collaborate, get things done, you know, don't go over people's head. We want you to be able to work things out at your own level. No matter how much we tell people that, somebody is in charge. And so my advice to people throughout the chain of command is, You've got to go vertical before you go sideways and diagonal. You've got to create vertical alignment. So you've got to be clear on what is your boss's priorities, your boss's boss's priorities. What are the marching orders? What are the ground rules? You should always know nine out of 10 times, 99 out of 100 times, exactly what your boss would say. And likewise, your direct reports, ask yourself, do you have that level of alignment? If you're a boss today, your a huge part of your job is to turn your direct reports into go-to people for everyone throughout the organization. A huge part of your job is to empower their lateral collaboration, to empower them to meet the needs of their internal customers. If you want to set your direct reports up for success so they can work things out at their own level, so they can serve their internal customers and so that they can rely on their internal counterparts and other departments, teams, divisions, the number one thing you've got to do is create alignment with them. Make sure your direct reports know exactly where you're coming from, exactly what your priorities are, exactly what your ground rules are, what your marching orders are. Give them that vertical anchor so they have the power to go sideways. So what happens if 100% agree with you, by the way, I mean, this, you said you never had a job, I can tell you that what you just described is absolutely the most effective way to operate in the world that you're describing. This collaborative revolution has been in existence for at least the last 10, 15 years. And the way to distinguish yourself, obviously, is to behave in a way that mirrors what your boss is doing. So you're not having to go back to your boss every 20 minutes and say, am I doing the right thing here? And is this what you want me to do and but at the same time you might be interacting with people who work on a team that aren't well led the way you've described it right so now i've got somebody who's a non-collaborator or who's slow to respond um putting me on the back burner i'll get to that but i can't get it i gotta get these other things done and now they're slowing you up and you're running inefficiently you're not being able to deliver what you need to to your boss and to the organization so what's the leader's job now Is it to go to that person's boss and say, hey, let's work this thing out here because, you know, we've got a little knot in the system? Or do you go back and coach the employee so that they can navigate that? What's the most effective way? Well, look, if you have direct reports, you've got to empower their lateral collaboration. But as you point out, it's going to be much easier to set them up for success when it comes to delivering for people as opposed to getting what they need from other people. And most people, you know, they're frustrated with both. They're frustrated that they're overwhelmed with requests and they have too much to do and not enough time. But even more frustrating is when they're the customer and they have to rely on people whom they can't hold accountable. And I think a lot of people get caught up in that. And so as a leader, if your people... Caught up in it, meaning they get frustrated or what do you mean? Yeah, I mean, they get frustrated, they get stuck. 
Okay. And so if your direct reports are stuck, they've got a few different options. One, they can sort of proceed until apprehended. They can just try to collaborate and make things happen until somebody gets in trouble, right? That usually doesn't work out too well because often what will happen is they'll start trying to work things out at their own level and they'll go 100 miles in the wrong direction or in a direction that then gets overruled. So they end up wasting a lot of time. Another option is that they can try to go over the other person's head somehow. Now, look, if you're a leader and you can see that there are cross-functional partners that your people are dealing with who are not getting the guidance, direction, support, and coaching they need from their bosses, sure, maybe you go to your lateral colleagues and you try to help them. I mean, that's just good business to help your lateral colleagues create greater alignment in their chain of command. But it's very hard to do that. Look, our research shows that the best strategies are trying to control how you deliver for other people. So uh, I'll give you an example. Yes, of course, uh, there may be room to go over that person's head to create greater alignment. You know, maybe the other boss is really bad and needs to be replaced. Sometimes that's the case. And if you don't have good vertical alignment, you're going to have a very hard time creating lateral collaboration. But, you know, that's something that I often am dealing with with C-level executives. And of course, we've been tracking these issues for a long time. This has been unfolding for a long time. But my number one advice to my direct reports in that case would be serve your internal vendors by being a more effective customer. Bend over backwards and jump through hoops to be a more effective customer. Help them help you. Show them the way. Go to them and make it easier for them to deliver for you. So let me ask you, I did a really poor job of setting this up, and I apologize to my audience here. You started off at the beginning by talking about how we're in this fear-driven you know, there's just today I was reading that companies are looking at furloughed employees. So they're basically not paying these people. And over the last three or four months, guess what's happened? They have outperformed what expectations were, their stock price has gone up, and now management's looking and saying, hey, we can't bring these people back because that's going to add expenses. And so all these people that were furloughed are going to be permanently let go. Yes. And so that's the world that we're working in right now. Employees, people that are having a job, you know, are feeling very lucky to have it. So they're operating out of this fear, like I got to be, you know, super person here, make sure that nobody comes looking for me and says, today is your last day. Irrespective of that environment, what are the reasons why somebody would want to be a go-to person in an organization and specifically why would you want to be a go-to leader? Like, why would I not just want to focus on my own team, my own goals, my own expectations, and, you know, help people as I can? But my orientation is really to stay close to my own knitting. Look, of course, you want to have your area of specialty. You should know what you want to be known for. And the more you do the work that is your specialty that you're known for, the more your time and energy is going to produce value. But the number one thing you can do in every interaction is add value for others. If you want to be valuable, you know, being valuable is in the eye of the beholder. The question is to whom? And the answer is to as many people as possible. But yes, first and foremost, to your boss. That's why you got to go vertical. Second, to your direct reports. That's why you got to go vertical and keep your people aligned and moving in the right direction. Then the question is, 
how many people think of you as really valuable. When you add value in every interaction, that doesn't mean you say yes. It doesn't mean you take on a new task or responsibility. It might mean you ask better questions. When somebody comes to you with a request, sometimes the best thing you can do for that person is help them fine tune their need, help them better understand what they need, help them better understand where you fit in relation to their need. But when you take a service orientation, when you stop and try to add value in every conversation, in every interaction, in every move you make, here's what happens. You create value. So you make the other person more valuable, including to you. You make the situation more valuable, including to you. And you build up your reputation among other people. Ultimately, influence is the holy grail, right? What is influence, though? Some people think of influence as your ability to get what you need out of other people. (laughs) My view is that if you try to use influence to get what you need out of other people, by and large, you make yourself somebody they don't root for. You know, the more you try to use... Yeah, you just diminish yourself. Exactly. Right. The more you mm-hmm. try to use influence to get what you need out of other people, the more you lose influence. You make other people not want to do things for you. What makes somebody truly influential is when you make other people want to do things for you, when you make other people want to work with you, want to make good use of your time, want you to be more powerful. And the way you do that is by being valuable to other people, by adding value so that when somebody comes to you, they may not think, oh, well, Mark's always going to say yes. But what they do know is if you say yes, you're going to deliver. Not only that, but if you say no, I have to stop and think, gee, maybe knows the right answer. Because if Mark says it, maybe Mark tends to be right. He tends to say no at the right time for the right reasons. See, these people who think that you have to learn how to say no, I always think, well, does that mean they think you can sugarcoat no and then all of a sudden I'll like it? No. What makes no easier to hear is when I suspect, oh, maybe I was wrong. Maybe no is the right answer. And what makes me think that is your reputation. That if you have a reputation for adding value, for doing the right thing, for doing the right thing for the right reasons, that gives you a huge amount of power. When you say yes, I know you're going to deliver. When you say no, I know, gee, maybe knows the right answer. And when you say not yet or Bruce, go back and fine tune your request, I think, wow, thank you. If you say it, I'm going to take that to the bank. So- your central thesis, by the way, that was an A-plus answer. So I was just very, very <laughs> very impressed with the way you just described this. And so I want to drill down into it. I think your thesis is something that this audience already embraces, which is this idea that by helping others achieve their goals, by focusing on what we can do for others rather than on what they can do for us, which is a, more of a traditional mindset, we elevate our standing and we make ourselves indispensable. And this kind of aligns to Adam Grant's work around givers, takers, and matchers. Yes. You know, and the idea that most people are quid pro quo, or they're in it for themselves, and they're not oriented towards giving in the way that you've described actually works out to their best interest, right? That's the irony. Why do you think there aren't more people like that in business? Like, why aren't we all oriented to be this indispensable go-to person? Well, I think that when people have the experience 
of giving and serving and they find out how rewarding and self-serving that selflessness is, it becomes reinforcing. So I think that when people feel overwhelmed by commitments, they start to develop a siege mentality so that every new new request feels like an assault. When people have the experience of and the confidence that they can add value for others, you know, when you can play even the intermediate game, forget the long game. If you're caught up in the moment in resisting new requests, resisting new interactions because you want to save yourself that momentary inconvenience and discomfort, what ends up happening is you give yourself fewer and fewer choices going forward. You give yourself less and less power going forward. You're still going to have to deal with lots of people and you're still going to have to do lots of work. It'll just be less and less of your own choosing. It'll be fewer and fewer people of your own choosing and less and less work of your own choosing. The more people want to come to you, the more choice you have. Because it is certainly the case. I mean, nobody will disagree that you can't do everything for everybody. I mean, that's just, you can't do everything for everybody. So the question is, how do you put yourself in a position to have more choice? You know, I often use the metaphor of being in over your head and fighting with your rescuer. Uh, when some, you know, yeah. that, that's how a lot of people feel in today's collaboration environment. So you have to control yourself. You have to sort of navigate. You have to choose people and choose opportunities. Yes is where all the action is. I mean, the funny thing is, yes is where all the action is. Yes is what leads to new relationships. Yes is what leads to collaboration. Yes is what leads to opportunities. Yes is what leads to projects. Yes is what leads to your ability to do tasks, responsibilities, and projects that create valuable products with your name on it. So if you're managing people or if you are a solo practitioner, yes is where all the action is. So don't waste your yeses. You need your nose. Well, there's another element of this that you left off, which I'm certain you're aware of, is that yes leads to learning. So when you say yes to things, you're generally getting involved with something that you wouldn't ordinarily have, and you're cultivating skills or you're being forced to learn things that you didn't know. It kind of puts you in an uncomfortable situation sometimes, but I can relate to this because I was a go-to person in my entire career, and especially as a leader. I became that person and you thrive. I mean, you're helping other people. You can see other people succeeding. You can see how grateful they are to you. You can see how you're bringing your own self to helping them be successful, which inherently makes you more successful. But I also was the guy who burnt out. Like there was nobody to rescue me because I didn't have the presence of mind to rescue myself because I think it became too satisfying to be that yes person. But mostly because the person who was my greatest abuser was my boss. So my boss said, that guy I can count on. I know he's going to do great work. I know he's going to meet the deadlines. I know he's going to exceed my expectations. And so I'm just going to give him this project. And then the next project comes and it's like, who do I have on my team that I can give this to? I'm going to give it to Mark again. And so my big question is, two big questions, Bruce. One is, how do you, as a manager 
know to take your foot off the accelerator and not push so hard on people who are already doing extraordinary work for you. That to me is like a really big one. But then the other side of this is like, you know, I used to look around and was like, why isn't everybody else like this? Like, how do you develop a whole team? Every time I managed a team, I always wanted everybody to be a go-to person. So anytime you gave them a project or an assignment, you knew they were going to do great. You knew they were going to be helpful. You knew they were going to be thriving. You knew they were going to reflect greatly on the team. So, but my own bosses never really did that. They never held the highest standard to everyone. They just went to the people who already were high-performing. So I'll stop there, and uh, I know you'll have a great answer for this. Well, I mean, you're exactly right. I always joke, you know, back in the old days, we used to speak on stages, and I always joke that the problem with being a go-to person is everyone goes to you, and then pretty soon you're overwhelmed. So a big part of go-to-ism is finding other go-to people and building up other go-to people. It's one of the reasons why you want to not just build up your areas of specialty and know what you want to be known for, but you want to create good job aids that help you teach other people to do those things. Invest in other people, build up other people. One of the things that I've learned over the years is Sometimes the go-to people who get labeled as high potentials and become leaders are the ones who organically use their best practices and their repeatable solutions and their job aids, their checklists, their templates to build up other go-to people and to give other colleagues opportunities to support them so that when somebody goes to them and they say, look, you know, I've got three hours a week from Tuesday, I could work on that, but that's the soonest I could get to it. Or, you know, I've been developing Mr. Blue and I can keep an eye on Mr. Blue, but I think Mr. Blue could do this for you. Mr. Blue isn't as expert at this as I am, but I'm trying to build up Mr. Blue, right? So when you do that, pretty soon you're this go-to person who also has developed uh, organically an ad hoc or a de facto team around yourself when the bosses are looking for someone to promote and you've already got a team around you. Well, you've also, you just hit on something also that's really important, which is that in cultivating a reputation for being a go-to leader, we're framing it that way, that by sending that person to the meeting, let's call it the way you just described it, to work on that project or go to a meeting and work with this person instead of like me doing it. By me sending somebody else that I've been developing and coaching and I'm saying, hey, I can't do that right now, but what I'm going to do is to give you this person. Now you've cultivated this reputation for being a great developer of people and a generous developer of people, right? Because I don't get seduced in the moment and go, oh, I'll go, you know, and you like you're threatened by that person or insecure or you find the project sexy. But if you build this reputation where you're saying, hey, I've been working with Mr. Blue for a long time now and I know Mr. or Mrs. Blue, Miss Blue, whatever, can go in and do this for you. Now, now you're saying anybody that I give you is going to do great work for you. And that is so expansive. Isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. And so a big part of being a successful go-to person is having the confidence to know you can't do everything, so you got to do the right things. 
And sometimes doing the right thing is concentrating on high leverage activity. So high leverage activity might be putting more time into a solution to make it a repeatable solution. High leverage activity might be putting more time into working with a customer so that next time the customer understands better how to utilize your skills so that they come with a more fine-tuned ask. Uh, They know how to help you help them. High leverage activity might be developing backup people. And you have to have the confidence that what you bring to the table is not just your expertise, not just your hard work, not just your good attitude, but your ability in each interaction to see where you can add value so that what people begin to realize about you is whatever you do, however you do it, you always add value to the equation. That's ultimately, even if you don't get done for me exactly what I thought I wanted right in the way that I thought at the time that I thought, what I learn about you is when I go to you, things go better. So let's chunk this up and talk about this being go-to as a element of a larger culture, right? So in other words, how do you create an environment where people have this orientation of being helpful to one another, regardless of whether or not that person works for them or they work for the person that's giving them the the request. You know, my whole career was in financial services and largely in pretty aggressive sales roles. And so in sales leadership roles. And so what I found is that the cultural aspects really supported each individual sales leader regardless of the level, as you do it for yourself, you get your team, you hit the goals because you're competing against everybody else. So it became an every man for himself kind of a a work culture, which doesn't really square with the culture that you're describing. So if you were leading a, a sales culture, would you say, hey, let's back off on this internal competition and make it more collaborative? Well, I think when you create incentives, you have to be aware of unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. And I do think you need to have incentives that are geared to individual performance. Absolutely. But you also have to be aware of distortions and corruptions that result from that. Uh, And I don't think it's an accident that these systems of individual reward and fierce competition sometimes lead to distortion and corruption. So I don't think that's an accident. Or just selfishness. It doesn't even have to be corrupt. It just has to be, you know, I got my own stuff, you got your own stuff, and never the twain shall Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I'm saying just, yeah. And and I'm using corruption in a very broad sense. I don't mean traditional. Okay, I got it. Yeah. Look, you know, my view is that you have to be able to create incentives and rewards for individuals who outperform others. I think the best way to do that is to get people competing with their own targets, uh, competing against themselves, that everybody has room to improve and everybody has room to get better. And so if you look at how, say, professional sports teams operate, there are individual incentives, but there are also huge incentives to work together. You know, my favorite examples are special operations in the military because I've worked with them a lot. and, And so I've learned from them 
a lot. And those are operations where everybody is a go-to person. Everybody is a superstar. Now, do some people still stand out among them? Yes, they do. Mm -hmm. Should they be rewarded? Uh, Yes, they should. So I think, you know, when you're trying to create a culture, you have to decide what you're going to reward. And if you only reward competition and bottom line outcomes, then that's the behavior you'll see. If you also reward team support, you have to find ways to monitor, measure, document, and reward support and collaboration. And otherwise, you won't drive that behavior. Well, I mean, but that's very thoughtful what you just described. And, you know, most organizations, I'll take that off the table because I can't say that too big of a generalization. But you're certainly aware of many organizations that lose sight of that, that unintended consequence component that you described, right? Which is that, hey, if we want these guys to perform, we want them to compete against each other. We want them to get the highest level of productivity, whether it's sales or what have you. And then we lose sight of the fact that people are sabotaging one another or not collaborating, bad-mouthing them to other customers, all sorts of, you know, the corruption that you were describing. So it's that balance. Yeah, and I think you're right, but I think it's per se investment logic uh, that has created a lot of distortions that one of the realities of today's business world is that a lot of times investors, look, they don't care if you burn out. Yeah, they I know. actually don't care. But we're moving away from that right now if we listen to the business roundtable. Yeah, I think that's right. But by and large, you know, there is a short term logic that is. So what I tell individuals is and, that, and and this is true. Look, I tell this to CEOs. I tell this to leaders at all levels. And what I've learned is that most leaders, what they're trying to do is drive collaboration down the chain of command and create go-to people as far down the chain of command who can get things done at their own level as possible. So in many ways, I wrote this book for leaders because this is the kind of culture leaders are trying to create. But what I tell everybody at every level is conduct yourself every day as if your reputation depends on it because it does. And so my influence lives in your brain. Your influence lives in my brain. The long game is When you have a reputation for being aligned with leadership, making good decisions and delivering results, then I'm going to listen to you. When people say to me, why? I'll say, because Mark said so. And then people are like, oh, yeah, okay, good. You know, that's influence. And so that's the longer game. In the intermediate game, you have to be confident that even if you make people unhappy right now, Pretty soon, they're going to start to see, oh, yeah, this is going pretty well, that you're proving out that you're making good decisions and doing good work. And even in the moment, the best way to disappoint someone is to be right, that you turn out to be right. So even if they're disappointed, it turns out you were right. And the best way to give people confidence that you're making a good decision is to be rigorous in your process. And that means much more important than the yes or no acutely is how you deal with the request. Tune into every request, tune into every need, pay attention, ask questions, honor and respect people's needs by asking a lot of questions when they want something from you. That does a huge amount of the work of showing them that you're paying attention to them and treating their need and request with respect. And it's going to give them a lot more confidence in the decisions you make. It's 
really great advice. And, you know, there's something that you just sort of reminded me of from your book that I won't have time to ask for your feedback on. But what I want to do is to tell you how spot on it is. I think sometimes that we think that, you know, you've got this Pareto system where 20% of the people who are on your team are going to do 80% of the work. And that means if you have that mindset, then you're not going to expect everybody on your team to be this go-to person. And the simple way of getting to high level of achievement from a team standpoint is to say, that doesn't stand up. We're going to expect if you're going to work on this team, then these are those expectations. I'm going to coach you, help you get there. You know, you've already brought your raw talent to this. But if you want to be a part of this team, then the expectation is, is that everybody's going to be a go-to person. And you made that point in the book. And I was like, very few managers understand that you can do that, that you can actually say, this is what I stand for. These are the expectations. And it's not a bad thing you're going to end up attracting really great, talented people who want to perform, who want to produce, who want to be part of a winning team. And it all starts with the expectation. So I just wanted to commend you. And by the way, I'm going to serve up my final question to you. So if you do want to comment on this, feel free to. But I'd like to take a quick break from our discussion here and transition into a podcast tradition we call the Heartbeat Round. So just to give us a little more personal insight into the biggest influences in your life, I'm going to ask you a few more personal questions. But these require a really quick instinctive and brief answer. So redundancy three times right there. So as fast as you can here, in other words, answer each one in a heartbeat. Are you game? I'll do my best. All right. Trait you admire most in other people? Generosity. A book you wish every leader in the world would read? The last lecture. One major workplace change you're certain will happen globally post-COVID? Going to the workplace will be a special occasion and working from home will be the default presumption. The quality that derails the most leadership careers. Ego. Quote that captures your life philosophy. Love is all you need. Something everyone should do once in their life. Fall in love. (laughs) Well, besides love, what's one thing the world needs more of these days? Generosity. One piece of advice you'd give to your younger self. Work harder. Really? Yeah. <laughs> 22 books? 21. Hard on yourself. <laughs> yeah. 21. There, like, work, yeah. work harder. Yes. Okay. Your synonym for the word heart? My synonym for the word heart. Soul? The best money you've ever spent? Taking care of my niece. The most underestimated and undervalued leadership quality of all? Self-doubt. One subject you think would be wise for everyone listening in to bone up on? Philosophy. These are wonderful. Great answers. So thank you. I want to get back to, I've got one final question for you, but this was wonderful. So thank you very much. Thank you. My final question really is just to turn the the stage over to you. Leave us with your best summary of why any of us would want to put ourselves out at work in ways that would make us indispensable. When you're working, you have an opportunity to set yourself apart, to add value to make good use of your time, to make good use of other people's time. You have to decide who you want to be. Practice being the person you want to be. Be someone who serves others. Be someone whom others want 
to be more powerful. Be someone whom others don't want to let down. And the way you do that is by treating other people's needs with respect, tuning into them, making sure that it's something you can do, something you're allowed to do, something you should do. And then if you say yes, take action and deliver for people. Thank you, Bruce. This um, sort of standing outside of myself, I'm looking at this podcast and I'm thinking it really took on a great momentum as we got going here. And it actually proved to be really inspiring. So on behalf of my entire audience, I want to say thank you very, very much. And I wish you great success with your book, number 23. And, 20, uh, 21, 21. 21. Yeah. Okay, number 21. But seriously, this is really, really uncommon kind of dialogue that we had here. So I want to thank you for that. Oh, thank you. And uh, what fun. And thanks for making it easy. And thanks for bringing out the best in me. <laughs> it was the best in you. So, all right, best to you, sir. Before we go, I want to say thanks to all of you who've introduced our podcast to your friends, colleagues, and even employees, not to mention all of you who thoughtfully shared episode links on social media. We know there are many podcasts out there for you to choose from and having a growing audience as our sole indicator that you find them useful, informative, and worthwhile. If you haven't already, I invite you to subscribe to our podcast so that you receive new episodes the moment that they're published. And we'd so appreciate it if you could take a brief moment to provide a review of our show on Apple Podcasts. If you write one, I'll be sure to call out your name and thank you on a future show. Speaking of thanks, as always, I want to acknowledge my wonderful team, including Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Carrie Finnessy, Josh Richard, sound engineer and producer Eric Oz, and I would be lost without the support from each of them. And as always, I leave you with the same final thought. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley. Thank you for listening in and signing off for now. Mm-hmm.